a flight to inner space. Inner space, certainly not the goal of today's scientists, physicists, governments, or computer experts. Their goal is outer space. Now, this is understandable, of course, because millions of years before man's mind had reached any degree of concentration, he couldn't help but be very conscious of up there. The sun filled the sky by day, and the moon filled the sky by night. And he would begin to pass on in his genes this pattern of day and night. And therefore, he became, in turn, a worshipper of the sun, and much later, a worshipper of the moon. But very, very gradually, consciousness did rise. And over thousands of years, man became able to hold thoughts. Only tenuous and fleeting at the beginning, but certainly able to strengthen and hold his thoughts by the time, for example, that the ancient Greeks arrived. And of course, with the ancient Greeks, man's mind really began to blossom. Great minds, you know, those Greeks had. So logical and profound were their thoughts that even today, their works are studied for their knowledge because they contain so much about the universe and the cosmos. They seem to have an inner grasp of the laws of nature and of the laws of the universe. And today, thousands of years later, man is only rediscovering what they seem to have a very firm grasp of. Now, many of them began to study the objects in this vast area above them and around them, because Pythagoras, even at this time, 2,000 years ago, or more than that, said that the Earth was not flat, but was round. And of course, this wasn't accepted until about the 15th century. And these learned Greek scholars realized that some stars were stationary, some moved, some were brighter than others. And the ones that moved, they gave the Greek name of planos, meaning wandering course. And they also called the whole of the vast cosmos around them the Greek word cosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S. -O -S -S. And that means a universe viewed as an ordered and orderly system. And of course, some of them even realized that the planos, meaning the planets, exerted influences on human beings. Now, Lucius Aeneas Seneca, a famous Stoic philosopher who was born in 4 BC, said in his book, Seven of Natural Questions, the time will come when diligent research over long periods will bring to light things which now lie hidden. A single lifetime, though, even entirely devoted to the sky, would result 
in very little knowledge. Because the kind of knowledge required will be unfolded only over long successive ages. There will come a time, he said, when our descendants will be amazed that we did not know things that are so plain to them. And many discoveries, he said, will be reserved for ages still to come. And I like this little verse where he said a little statement. Our universe would be a very sorry little affair if there was not something for every age to investigate. Nature does not reveal her mysteries once and for all. So this shows that even in 4 BC, what a grasp these minds had on the universe and nature. So how have we got on in our investigations since 4 BC, particularly with reference to the heavens? Many scholars and philosophers tried hard during the 15th and 16th centuries to put their ideas to the rest of mankind. But in many cases, they died for their beliefs or were persecuted by the church. But truth never dies. It may have to go underground for a while, but it always comes to the forefront again. Now, the astronomer mathematician, I like to put these two together. The astronomer mathematician, say between 1850 and 1950, told us that the universe was so ancient, so vast, so remote, so complicated, that only those who excelled at mathematics could even attempt to unravel a few of its secrets. This last part of the statement, of course, has proven to be true. Any understanding of the manifested creation is only possible by a knowledge of mathematics, particularly pure mathematics, geometry, and trigonometry. The astronomer-physicist, and again the two words together, of today also works from this angle. And the television documentaries and discussions on this topic, and there have been quite a few over the last two or three years, are enabling millions of people to understand something about the cosmos, outer space. The greatest contribution, however, that these modern physicists, these modern astronomers are bequeathing to us is the knowledge that we, in a very real sense, are part of that cosmos. That everything comes from one source. Professor Bernard Lovell said, all life proceeds from the same cosmic dust. And Carl Sagan said, one view, one voice in the cosmic fugue. Now the ageless wisdom, dating back hundreds of thousands of years, upon which the theosophical teachings are based, has profound concepts about the cosmos and its manifestation, its coming into perceivable view from an absolute, 
bringing into view galaxies, solar systems, and of course, man. And these concepts are being very slowly substantiated in the light of today's science. Now, I quoted a minute or two ago from Senecas that nature works slowly and only gives out her secrets over long periods of time. Looking at the way that we are using, for example, the tremendous knowledge that followed the splitting of the atom, it becomes evident why nature unfolding herself in evolution is such a slow process. Man's awakening to spiritual consciousness is so slow that it is almost stationary. And until a stage of spiritual awareness is reached, whereby he can use these newfound powers for the benefit of mankind, the lifting of any more of the veil will not be permitted. Those who today could use these powers for the good of all are immersed in the power game. Even the goal of reaching outer space is becoming tainted with sinister reasons. I can remember when I was young in school, 14 or 15, and there was a lot of talk then about space, although there was no hope, as we thought, of ever doing anything about, for instance, going to the moon. But it was always the idea of adventure, idealism, the thirst for knowledge, and the lure of the unknown. What is it today? It is power, world domination, the acquisition of heavy metals, extraterrestrial spying centers, the sighting of missile stations, which could not only wipe out mankind, but destroy this planet. And then those lovely lines spoken by Carl Sagan, the physicist, would no longer apply when he said, the unexpected discoveries in the cosmos remind us that humans have evolved to wonder, that understanding is a joy, and that knowledge is prerequisite to survival. I believe, he said, that our future depends on our getting to know this cosmos in which we float like a moat of dust in the morning sky. So beautifully put. Now, if we look up at the sky at night, we can see many stars, a few planets, and some constellations. Through the powerful telescope of the astronomers, we would see galaxies, nebulae, suns, and more stars. And the astronomer presumes, according to scientific law, that there are many more that cannot be seen even with a telescope. But of course, radio signals are received from a great many of them. I would like to ask you now, what thoughts come into your minds when you look up at the sky on a beautiful, 
clear starlit night. Now for me, it is an endless repetition of the same thoughts every time I look up on a clear starlit night. The mystery of its creation, its vastness, its orderliness, its seeming emptiness. Is there a parallel life to our own out there? Are there other kinds of superior beings out there? Beings maybe more spiritual than we are. But you know, the overwhelming feeling is one of being alone. This strange mystery of individuality is rooted in every one of us. You can never know what it's like to be me, and I can never know what it's like to be you. And as an incarnate being, experiencing this physical level through the senses, I cannot even know whether the color you see is the color that I see, or whether your feeling is identical to my feeling. And words don't help very much. We mortal millions live alone when it comes down to reality. Now the depths of these problems would be unfathomable if we relied solely on the intellect. The depths cannot be plumbed without the help of higher revelation. But you know, man still gazes up there and out there, hoping, I think, that some understanding may be reached. And consequently, all of you here tonight, I'm sure, have at times asked yourself the questions, who are we and what are we doing here? Do the answers I seek lie out there in the vastness and the depth of space? No, my friends, not for us at our level of evolution. Now, that's an important statement. Not for us at our level of evolution. The answers we seek can be found only by flights to inner space. Would it surprise those of you who may be new to our ideas that the area of inner space is many, many times vaster than the area of outer space, and that is incomprehensible to man. Now, what do I mean by inner space? Well, we could talk about it from the psychiatrist's point of view. He goes into inner space. We could talk about it from the psychologist's point of view. He deals with a type of inner space. There are many concepts of inner space, but we would be out of our depths. One has to specialize if we were going to discuss it from any of the viewpoints I've mentioned. I'm going to talk about it tonight from the point of view of seekers after truth. At least I can use familiar terms. Now, you know, there are many, many voices clamoring for our attention 
some from without and many from within. All these voices fight and jostle each other for our attention and ultimate commitment. Do you ever stop to think about them? It isn't just at the beginning of our lives or just at the end or just in the middle. It is all of our lives. These voices are trying to commit us. It starts with parents, it goes through with relations, teachers, employers, spouses, children, preachers, politicians, scientists, all wanting to involve us and make our lives ever more committed and even more complicated nine times out of ten. And then, of course, there are the inward voices, the inward voices of desire, attended by fears and jealousies, hatreds, maliciousness. And even in sleep, we're not left alone because we dream. And some people have very horrible dreams. And then, of course, there is another one that we resolutely put down, and that is the still, small voice silently and repeatedly prodding us. And what levels are all these voices calling us from? We may not realize it, but they are all connected with the requirements of our three physical bodies, which in theosophy we call the personality. Now I often say that man is four-fifths unconscious. You may think that's a bit exaggerated, but it isn't, you know, in the case of 80% of the masses. Man is awake, yet is asleep to the reality of life. Just one example. Man has seven bodies that he operates in. And of these, the only one he knows anything about is the dense physical body which he presumes is his totality. In the West, only a small number of people understand the functions of the other six. But at last, again, psychologists and psychiatrists and homeopathic doctors all now believe that our emotions and feelings are contained somewhere separately in or round about us and our thoughts and our creativeness are also cordoned off somewhere. And of course, religion tells us that we have a spirit and a soul also hovering or somewhere very close to us. Today, we could very easily hear a GP blithely saying, come on now, Mrs. Smith, there's nothing wrong with you. Your illness is all in your mind. Does he or poor Mrs. Smith really know what he's talking about? He may understand that Mrs. Smith is using her mind to make her think she's ill, but he has no idea how this thought operates, what form it takes, or what power it has. All our troubles and ill health 
are evident in these other bodies, the mental, the astral, and the etheric bodies, long before they show up in our physical bodies. And we can see, therefore, that our personalities rule us, clamoring day and night for attention. We're in a prison of our own making and should strive constantly to break down the barriers that hold us. We must discipline ourselves. We must quieten this conscious mind. Because you know, it's in the unconscious state that our true selves reside. But this conscious mind makes sure that nothing hardly but a tiny trickle of true thought, true ideals, is able to get through to us in what we would call our physical mind. Now, in all esoteric teachings, we are told that there is a constant battle going on between the higher self, or the true self, and the lower self, or the personality. Now, to win this battle, certain tactics have to be taken up. And we are told in our esoteric teachings that concentration, meditation, and contemplation are the battle tactics. Now, although final victory is assured for the higher self, eventually, the battle is a very long, drawn-out one and consists of advances and retreats. We sometimes say, don't we, two steps forward and one step back. This battle can last five years, 50 years, or 50 lifetimes. Now we're privileged to be living at a time when the needfulness for a Westerner to explore inner space has never been more necessary. This is a time of great instability, of change, of violence, of chaos, of materialism, and those who take time to go inwards, to recharge themselves, will be the ones who, because of their spiritual experiences, will be the steadying influences when stability returns once more. You know, we go to lectures, we, certain ones of us, do a lot of study, we read our books, some go to church, some deeply revere a deity, or a teacher, or an ideal. But noble as all that may be, it is not good enough. And many of you who have realized this already will have started looking for truth in your own way. Now, one of the most widely used ways for seekers in the, in the West is the mystical approach, sometimes called mysticism, the yoga of the West. 
the core of mysticism in all the religions of the world tell us that the search for God or for the true self, if you like, or for enlightenment, which is a word we hear a lot of today, comes from the inner recesses of being, of our own being. It is not flight to outer space or flight to India chasing a guru which is going to give you true knowledge, true seeing, serenity, and true experience, but flights to inner space. Now, Mr. Experience is generally accepted as supreme truth in the East, but here in the West, many people are a bit uncomfortable about it or, or even skeptical. I think this is due to identification with things mysterious, um, psychic or unreal. And I think that part of its unrealness stems no doubt from the fact that it is difficult to rationalize, particularly by the use of language, a mystical experience. We can describe light in terms of dark, we can describe high in terms of low, but one cannot find the words to describe a mystical experience because there is no known opposite against which to set it. And mystical experience, therefore, has usually been associated with religion because the experiences we hear, we read in different religions, one of melting away, of passing into infinite being, or of being beyond space and time. But of course, it is important to realize that it doesn't favor any particular religion. Now, a non-thinking man or a non-religious man will not understand the need for a journey to inner space. However, he will reach a particular lifetime when the need for at least a trial flight inwards becomes an overwhelming need. For seekers after spiritual truth, and I take it that all of us here tonight fall into that category. There comes a time when answers to our questions must be endorsed by our experience or abandoned. Our souls at last demand that we shall know the truth. They're no longer content to accept what the mind believes. And this eventually brings a commitment to walking on the spiritual path with its unlimited vistas. It's only at deeper inner levels of awareness that we can become sensitive to nonverbal communication and become increasingly aware of oneness with each other and with the source. Be still and know 
that I am God. Great men have made these journeys to the center repeatedly, the very center of inner space. Some of the earlier, more well-known names were people like Shankasharya, Buddha, Christ, and Krishna. But since then, there have been followers of all religions who have experienced these journeys. Just to mention a few, Meister Eckhart, the Christian mystic, Dr. Suzuki, the Zen mystic, Krishnamurti, Simone Vale, Thomas Merton, Idrius Shah. I'm sure all these names are familiar to you. I could fill quite a few pages with names, but taken all together, in comparison with the number of people on this planet, they would constitute hardly or barely a drop in the ocean, so to speak. Now, using the concentration, meditation, contemplation tactics, we are going to attempt a flight to inner space. It'll be a new experience for some, even to get to the first stage. But for the later stages, we will have to rely on the experience of the mystics. As we have now become more familiar with outer space jargon and outer space programs, I'm going to use the same principles for our inner space trip as an analogy. Because there was no authentic knowledge or records that man had been in space prior to the last few decades, preparation for such a journey took about 30 to 40, even maybe nearly 50 years. Some of the world's greatest mathematical geniuses pooled their resources, backed up by teams of eminent scientists, astronomers, and physicists, to reach that marvelous achievement of landing a man on the moon. All this was accomplished by physical minds, physical exertion, physical determination, plus billions of dollars. The preparation instruction required for a journey to inner space have been handed down since the beginning of manifestation and costs no money, only time, effort. Never let anyone use the excuse that there are no preparation instructions. There are more books in the Western world now on preparation for an inner space trip than there are participants. The trouble with us is, you know, that we find reason after reason, excuse after excuse, as to why we delay the preparation period. Family conditions disturbing environments, lack of time, too tired, too difficult. And worse than the outer obstacles are the inner ones, 
doubts and fears. But you know, eventually, one is driven to the only eternal refuge within yourself. And we must start to develop a power in us which can crush all these obstacles and these vices, and this power is our will. Extremes aren't necessary. Gradual process is more and most essential because willpower grows proportionately to the efforts made. And that means the greater the sacrifice and renunciation, the greater the results. But we always have to give a word of warning. Madame Blavatsky always gave an, a, a word of, the same word of warning, that an aspirant should on no account attempt to eradicate all the vices at one time. This will only end in failure. So we have to take one problem or one vice at a time, solve it successfully, even if it takes years, and then move on to another one. HPB's own words were that inner space is strewn with frustration and shattered beliefs of defeated triers, just as outer space is strewn with debris. Now, aligned with the fact that the preparation period has been carried out, we are now ready to look at the itinerary for our space trip. One, the idea. Two, the destination or the goal. Three, the means of getting there, the vehicle. Four, directions how to get there. Five, picked crew. Six, departure and the journey. Seven, arrival at destination. And eight, departure and return. Now let's look at number one, the idea. The idea for a certain flight into outer space is invariably the brainchild of one mind. Once put into words, however, it is very quickly augmented by many other minds of a like nature. But it starts as a consuming idea in one mind. And as I said, it becomes a team mind in no time at all. Then the drawing boards and the computers take over. The idea for a flight to inner space also has to start with a consuming flame. When a man through darkness suffers sufficiently, and let's face it, because of his ignorance, ignorance always causes us to act wrongly and thus make needless suffering for ourselves, all under the law of destiny. But when we start to feel the pressure of this suffering, we cry out. For what? For relief. And relief means peace. And what do we do then? We search in every material condition we can think of, every worldly condition we can think of, 
And then we start to search through the mental experiences. But we're never satisfied, are we? And why? Because we're searching outside ourselves instead of inside ourselves. So the longing becomes more intense, more than we can bear. And depending on our spiritual evolution, we may get the idea for this trip early on in life. Some people are lucky. They get the idea early on due to karmic destiny. But with most of us, it comes after much questioning over the years about the meaning of life. When, for example, we reach this stage of who am I and why am I here and where am I going? Ramana Maharishi, a very spiritual Indian yogi, said to his disciples that the one who poses these questions is the ego, which uses the instrument, the mind, to ask them. And he said, this is the false usurper who has acquired control of the personality and that this ego could be made to vanish if the thought of I was pursued hard enough and far enough in inward meditation. Number two, the destination and the goal. Now, the destination for the outer trip could be anywhere. Could be a landing on Mars someday, or some other named star. The motive also could be one of many. As I said before, mining exploration, or suitable missile, or lab stations. And the journey could take many weeks, many, many years. We're even told it could be many centuries of our Earth time. The destination or goal of our inner space trip could be and is called by many names, depending on the person making the trip. But they'd all mean the same thing. Unio mystica, God realization, the samadhi of the Hindu, the satori of the Zen follower, the nirvana of the Buddhist, all meaning a true birth of the soul. Experience of oneness with the cosmos. The experience of knowing with one's soul. And to sum it up in one word, liberation. It will depend on our spiritual evolution and our preparedness as to how long our journey will take. There are those blessed ones, of course, who can reach the center almost instantaneously. There are spiritual yogis who can spend days and years at their center. But this is not suitable for Westerners. We are placed in our busy environment for reasons of service and duty, responsibilities. There are spiritual seekers on spiritual paths of various denominations who try daily to reach their center. But I have to say, unfortunately, 
that for the great majority of us, we will not succeed at all in this incarnation of getting to the center. But every effort is recorded on the finer waves of the ether and in the future, when we have done some more preparation on ourselves and our yearning has become vivid enough to us and become so much a part of us, we will have a successful trip one day. Number three, the vehicle. Billions of dollars are spent, aren't they, on the vehicle for the outer space trip. It is tested, tried, and checked in every possible way for many months before. We start our journey in the physical vehicle, which we call the body. How much testing of its suitability have we given it? Is it tired before we start? Is it worn out with the abuse of alcohol or drugs? Or have we kept it nourished and as pure as we're capable of? Because whichever way we have treated it is going to be of vital importance to the success of our trip. If the I, the personality, has been in charge of it, then heaven help us. How are we going to control it during the flight? You know, friends, we want to enjoy all the pleasures of the world to the full and to have realization of God or the divine at the same time. Vain dream. It cannot be done. How can it when one is real and one is unreal? In the little book called Towards the Goal Supreme, it says, to realize God, one must devote oneself to the task, heart and soul, a hundred percent. Not even less by a millionth part of one percent will do. How far? Are we all off that commitment? Now, almost all of us seek to realize him without much toil and trouble and without sacrificing anything. We want to compromise between God and the world. And we think that if a guru can get him for us and give us enlightenment, Nothing could be better. But as I've said, this is a vain dream. It cannot be. Number four, directions on how to reach the goal. The outer space crew is briefed with as much knowledge as humanly possible. And for obvious reasons, that can't be very much, can it? But they can at least, or hopefully they will for, for quite a, a number of hundreds of years, see the goal that they are trying to get to. And of course, the computers do all the rest, don't they? They are primed for probability with a few safety precautions for improbabilities. But regarding our journey, 
We shouldn't be attempting this journey unless we have devoted as much time as possible to the preparation, studying the preparation instructions. And because we're all at different stages of evolution, we will take this early stage of the flight in several different ways. In other words, we all begin our flight very privately and very separately. For example, when one starts to look into spiritual truths, one is drawn to a particular path. Maybe the path of knowledge, jnana. Maybe the path of devotion, bhakti. Um, some follow the Christian lines of mysticism, and some are drawn to the Buddhist lines of meditation and teaching. The final part of the journey, however, is the same for all faiths. Number five, the picked crew. Astronauts spend years in preparation for their journey. Months of strenuous exercising, being tested for stress and strain. They are schooled in the discipline of mind, emotion, and body. And most important, they are completely dedicated to the task set them. We haven't got a crew. This flight is one that must be taken alone, with the deepest commitment and without fear. This flight is going to be the loneliest of your life and will always be a lonely flight, no matter how many trips you make. No one, not even a teacher, we are told, can enter one's being and lead one by the hand to the center. Number six, departure and journey. The spacecraft blasts off with a formidable display of power, rising from its cradle amidst noise and smoke and flame, it soars up into the sky. And you know, one cannot blame man for saying, oh, aren't we clever? We are. But there is now no turning back, and many wonderful breathtaking sights will be seen by the astronauts. Some who have returned, the earlier ones, have said that they touched the hand of God while they were in orbit. And many of them have changed their complete lifestyles since they returned. Now, our departure is an exceedingly unimpressive one. Seated quietly and comfortably, we close our eyes and relax. We use the methods that we should have been practicing many, many times. Relax the body, breathe deeply and slowly, and check that our powers of concentration are working. As I stated before, this exercise of concentration we should have been working on for months and years before attempting this flight. We should have reached the stage of complete one-pointedness on any chosen subject, be it a watching the breath, or visualizing a teacher, or a deity, or even visualizing a flower. A flower. 
not just its shape and its colour, but the dew drop on the petals, the velvet softness of the petals, the faint fragrance that exudes from the flower. In fact, we should become the flower. That is true concentration. Now, we must hold our concentration as we start to fly inwards. Usually, after about 30 minutes, we see coming into view the sea of meditation. But shortly after this, usually about 10 or 15 minutes after, many who have started the journey will be in serious trouble. It could be called, in today's space jargon, a malfunction. What's happened? What has happened? They have lost concentration. They have not prepared themselves sufficiently. The effort of controlling the stream of thoughts is too much. And try as they may to stem the tide of the tide, it is no use. Discipline goes, and business and family thoughts come floating back into the mind. Concentration has completely gone. Another reason why some of us want to go no further, consciously or unconsciously, is fear. Fear of what we may find out about ourselves. But there is one reason, of course, for failure which supersedes all others, and that is that many who try are not ready. The flame was only flickering and not consuming, and the yearning was only weak, lukewarm, not making us heart sick. And the motive wasn't the right one to make the journey. So many will turn their vehicle homewards and console themselves. It is always another time to try again. However, a few will continue the journey. And after a while, subtle changes occur. It seems as though we are literally entering another world. All values are altering and all sense of time slips away. This is the area where a vision of life's essential unity begins to impinge on the mind. The vehicle begins to feel lighter and lighter as we are now operating in finer vehicles of matter and we feel free. We are now over the area of inner space called meditation. Only on the threshold, however, so many of us delude ourselves. Some of us have been at the threshold on previous trips, but have been unable to go further in or feared to venture further. You know, we have to be prepared to face unpleasant things concerning ourselves, because the mask behind which we have hidden for so long has to come off. And many of us won't like what is revealed. 
those who are able to go on are those who have concentrated their energies on slaying selfishness and the faults of the personality, ignored the claims of the lower self, and striven during long preparation periods to expand the vision of the higher mind. These two must be fused in order to cross this vast sea of meditation. And as I said before, no one else can help you, not even the teacher. The harmonizing of these various vehicles of consciousness is the only way. Now again, we are given instructions by seers and mystics on ways to successfully navigate this area of space. And again, it is up to the individual to choose those ways most suited to his temperament. At this stage, there is still a wide choice depending on our devotional ideal. Visual meditation, listening meditation, Buddhist meditation, Christian meditation. It doesn't really matter. The goal is the same. A perfect balance and a perfect harmonizing is now needed. And we must pay particular attention to our thoughts and feelings whilst in this area. We must watch that arrogance and pride do not take possession of us. We may think we have reached the ultimate, but we are still functioning in the limited consciousness. And therefore, I is itself still the real object of this part of the journey. Over the sea of meditation, watch this eye. Meditate for a while on the three bodies that we are now functioning in. Only one apparent body, the physical vehicle, can be seen, but we are using two other invisible vehicles, the astral and the mental. In the little book called The Servant by Lazenby, we read, I am not my physical body, but that which uses it. I am not my emotions, but that which controls them. And I am not my mental images, but that which creates them. Now, even fewer can proceed further. The sea of meditation is a vast one. Mile after mile has to be traversed safely across this sea to its furthest shore means that the voyager has carried out an intense program over many years. Those beautiful lines from the voice of the silence have been heeded. Silence thy thoughts and fix thy whole attention on thy master, whom yet thou dost not see but whom thou feelest. Merge into one sense thy senses, if thou wouldst be secure against the foe. Tis by that sense alone, which lies concealed within the hollow of thy brain, that the steep path which leadeth to thy master may be disclosed 
before thy soul's demise. Long and weary is the way, O disciple. Yes, it means that a program of strict discipline, sacrifice, suffering, loneliness, and despair, so formidable that we shrink from it and step back in fear. But the yearning for the center, which is in each one of us, will someday force us through all barriers. Now we're told by those who have been to the center of inner space many times that these last few miles over the sea of meditation are called the area of trust. By no known process can something be a seed one moment and become a full-grown flowering plant the next. All that is asked of us is a dedication of purpose, discipline, and trust. And whenever I think of trust, I think of those beautiful words of Louise Hopkins when they wrote, I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread softly in the unknown. And he said, go out into the darkness and put your hand in the hand of God. That will be better to you than light and safer than a known way. And again, a master once said, walking along the spiritual path is like walking under an archway of humility with two keys in your hand, the key of love and the key of trust, which will open every door for you. And the master Jesus said, verily I say unto you, except ye become as little children, ye cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. On this now truly spiritual part of the flight, nothing is needed that intellect can provide. Intellect is an instrument of the ego. And this is the reason why we find so few intellectual men on the spiritual path. Because fixed ideas and aspirations all dogmatizing and all self-importance have to be abandoned. And we do understand that the very simple, loving, trusting soul is usually the one that has a simple, easy, straightforward trip. Now the whole purpose of this part of the journey over the sea of meditation is to break through the clouds of mind and become aware of the higher self. It has been said that whilst prayer is talking to God, meditation is listening to him. Meditation is the cessation of action in order to contact spirit. The one on the mystic path finds satisfaction in meditation because there's no longer any need to prove or propitiate a deity, for he discovers through meditation that his heart is already a holy place inhabited by the deity. And I always remember when I think about this, that poignant passage 
in the Confessions of St. Augustine, when he cries out, Too late have I loved thee, and behold, thou wert within, and I was abroad, and there I searched for thee. Thou wert with me, but I was not with thee. So poignant. Now, there are some who can approach the sea of meditation by their appreciation or their appreciative receptivity to beauty, good music, and art, and nature. Anyone who yields himself to the impressions received through art and nature will one day experience a sensation of being lost to himself. I'm sure many of you have experienced this feeling of stepping out of time whilst watching a sunset. All argument, care, frustration, and resistance are washed away. You can't describe this feeling, for there are no words. But this exquisite feeling does reveal higher possibilities, because from this moment, the seeker is haunted by the bliss that filled him, if only for a few minutes, a few moments usually. And when he understands that through discipline, he can recover those moments of bliss without any external aid, then he is one step on to contemplation. The mind is now quiet. The silence deepens and deepens. And yet, strangely, we are told one hears sounds that one has never heard before. There are few able to go on. Those who have flown over the sea of meditation will now see below them the ocean of contemplation. This part of the flight is for the soul alone. And we will need to consult the teachings and the writings of some of the great ones who make this flight often to learn that what is at the center. And we learn that it is over this area of contemplation that the immediate experience of God becomes man's sublimest experience whilst in, in incarnation, as an incarnate being. For there, we are told, glowing with radiance at the center is the eternal perfect Atman, the realization of the eternal principle. That magnificent biblical development in us of those words, I am that, that am I. A basic glorious oneness a state of pure consciousness. No more duality, no more questions, no more doubts, no mind to slay the real. This is the peace which passeth understanding. The goal has been reached, liberation. Sri Shankara said, like space, I go further than thought. I'm all pervading. Like the sun, I am different from what is made visible by it. 
and like the ocean, I am boundless. And another mystic described it as a crystal clear, all-penetrating, immaterial light, like an unweighable liquid in which the individual conscience was melted away to become united with the illimitable ocean of all. And just to finish, George Arundel was one of those who was given the experience of contemplation or samadhi. And he describes the center as light. There was neither center nor circumference, he says, but only dazzling radiance, which led him to write, God is light, light is God, man is light, all is light, a blinding glory at the center, translated into color light, sound light, form light, substance light, as it descends in ever-increasing manifestation. It's a supreme consummation, and it opens out a pathway of stupendous glory. And all mystics tell us that the outer worlds are worlds of shadow compared with the inner worlds. And we should realize, of course, that as we evolve spiritually, our center at inner space is correspondingly changing, deepening, and the bliss that we will find one day will be as nothing compared to a later day when we have done some more preparation on ourselves, for there are centers within centers. Now, no one who has work to do in the world, and that includes the truly spiritual evolved will stay at the center for long. As soon as they are recharged, they prepare to depart. There are millions struggling towards the light, and who better to guide them than those who by their own efforts can bathe and renew themselves at will. So the vehicle is turned round and headed for home, soon to be floating gently back again down to the physical world. Although our physical world is only a world of shadows, yet it is God's shadow. It is God's dream. And we have the privilege of bringing light and beauty into it. So let us help in that work by preparing ourselves for flights to inner space.